choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Caroline Annis filling in for the sick Michael Annis. You are listening to episode 282 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, battery number 2. Wednesday, April 15th, 1.30 p.m. At the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Don Arabian was in building 45 when battery number 2 in Aquarius's descent stage exploded. Arabian's offices were a quarter mile from Mission Control in one of the bland blockhouse-like structures where people like Ed Smiley worked. However, Arabian was not at the periphery of things. He and his staff were equipped with much the same monitor screens as the men who worked in Mission Control. They listened in on the same air-to-ground loops and they tracked the same data streaming back from the spacecraft. The only difference was each man at each console in Mission Control was expected to keep track of only his small part of the command module or limb. Arabian was expected to keep track of everything. When Battery 2 in Aquarius went down, he knew his phone would start ringing. The part of Building 45 where Don Arabian worked was called the Mission Evaluation Room, or MER, or MER. Arabian was commonly referred to as Mad Don by the men who worked in the MER, and the nickname fit. In a community of scientists in which the prevailing accent was Texan, the prevailing cadence was sleepy, and questions were answered with a nod as often as with a word, Arabian was a chatterbox. And what he liked to talk about most were his systems. To Arabian, as well as to the 50 or 60 other men who worked in the mission evaluation room. Every nut or bulb or piece of hardware in a spacecraft could be defined in terms of systems. A fuel cell was an energy system. The limb was a landing system. A single warning light was an illumination system. Even the astronauts themselves whose job it was to push the buttons that made all the other hardware go, were considered a system too. Altogether, in the command module, there were 5.6 million such systems. In the limb, there were several million more. When something went wrong with any one of them, it was Don Arabian's job to figure out why. Somewhere in every accident was a piece of hardware that had been pushed beyond the job it was designed to do. And while the men in mission control worked to fix the busted part, Arabian worked to find out why it had failed in the first place. When Fred Hayes reported a bang in his descent stage 
and the data on the limb screen in the mission evaluation room showed battery two starting to falter. Arabian went to work. Only a few minutes after he got underway, the phone at his console rang. As expected, it was Jim McDivitt. McDivitt, the former commander of Gemini 4 and Apollo 9, and the current head of the Apollo program office, would be monitoring Apollo 13 from the back row of consoles in mission control. If something else was going wrong with either Aquarius or Odyssey, McDivitt would be the first one to press Arabian for answers. McDivitt wanted to discuss the battery problem over lunch, so Arabian complied. In even the brief time Arabian had to investigate Aquarius's problem, he was reasonably certain he had found the source. Each of the limb's four batteries consisted of a series of silver-zinc plates immersed in an electrolyte solution. As the plates and the fluid worked together to produce electricity, they also gave off as byproducts hydrogen and oxygen. Typically, the two waste gases were generated in such small quantities that they could barely be detected, but occasionally a battery would overproduce the vapors and a few stray wisps would collect in a nook in the battery's lid. Arabian had always been a bit skittish about that nook. Combine oxygen and hydrogen in a small enough space and pressure begins to build. And when pressure begins to build, all you need is a spark to create an explosion. The inside of a battery, of course, is a likely place a spark could occur. And when Hayes reported his bang and flakes, Arabian figured that the little battery bomb that had been waiting to go off in every battery of every limb that ever flew had finally blown. However, the diagnosis was not nearly as bad as initially thought. After sitting down with an on-site representative of the Eagle Pisher Company, the contractor that manufactured the batteries, Arabian concluded that the injury the limb had sustained was easily survivable. The explosion clearly had been a small one, given the fact that battery two was still working. More important, to the degree that the battery had been damaged, the rest of the electrical system seemed to be compensating. The LIMS power grid was designed in such a way that if any one of the spacecraft's four batteries was unable to perform its job fully, the other three would partially compensate. As Arabian and the on-site technician studied the numbers, they could see that batteries one, three, and four had already increased their electrical output, allowing battery two to stabilize. On later flights, Arabian knew the system would have to be redesigned. No more limbs could be allowed to fly with miniature grenades built into their bodies. For now, though, Apollo 13's batteries looked stable. Arabian, along with the Eagle Pisher representative and a Murr electrical engineer, made their way to the Building 45 conference room. Within minutes, Jim McDivitt, accompanied by two representatives from Grumman, the manufacturer of the limb, arrived as well, and the lunch meeting began. Fellows, Arabian said, 
We've been looking at the numbers, and the good news is, this is no big deal. He turned to the Eagle Pitcher engineer. You agree? No big deal, the engineer said. So, the battery will stay online? McDivitt asked. It should, said Arabian. And we can make it back on the power we've got? We should, Arabian said. We were pulling fewer amps than we thought we would anyway, so we should stay within our margin of error. Then there wasn't an explosion? The Grumman man asked. Oh, there was an explosion, Arabian said. But nothing actually blew up, the Grumman man amended. Sure it did, Arabian said. The battery blew up. But do we have to actually use that term? I mean, the battery's still operating. People get awfully excited when you say something blew up. What term would you suggest? The Grumman man said nothing. Look, Arabian said after a pause, you know this is no problem, and I know this is no problem. But if the battery screws up, I'm going to say so. And if a tank screws up, I'm going to say so. And if the crew screws up, I'm going to say so. Fellows, these are just systems, and if you're not honest with yourself about what went wrong, you aren't going to be able to fix anything. Arabian glanced at his wristwatch. There were seven or eight million other systems aboard Apollo 13 that might require his attention today, and a few more minutes was all he could afford to spend on a working lunch. Back in space, Jim Lovell was surprised by what had become of his limb in the time he was asleep. It had been a little after 10 o'clock Wednesday morning when he floated up the tunnel to Odyssey to begin his sleep cycle, and it wasn't until close to 3 in the afternoon that he prepared to move back down. The four and a half hours of sleep was by far the most rest he'd had since the accident and with Splashdown now less than 48 hours away, the sleep couldn't have come at a better time. As always on this trip, Lovell stirred himself from slumber well before his scheduled wake-up call from the ground. Rising from his couch in the frosty command module, he looked around, bleary-eyed, and drifted through the lower equipment bay toward the tunnel. But before going down to the limb, he stopped and considered something. Off and on, Lovell had been entertaining the idea of breaking what was ordinarily an ironclad rule on all space missions, and now, almost impulsively, he decided to do it. Opening the top three buttons of his flight suit, he reached beneath his thermal undershirt, felt around for the biomedical sensors that had been glued to his chest since before liftoff Saturday and began painfully removing them. There were several reasons Lovell decided that the electrodes had to go. First of all, they itched. The adhesive used to hold the sensors in place was supposedly hypoallergenic, but after four days, even the most skin-friendly glue was going to become annoying, and this glue surely was. But more important, 
pulling off the sensors would save power. The biomedical monitoring system that beamed the astronauts' vital signs to Earth drew its power from the same four batteries that powered everything else aboard the LEM, and although the electrodes did not use much power, they still consumed some. Finally, there was also the question of privacy. Like any test pilot, Jim Lovell had long prided himself on his ability to keep his emotions out of his voice, whether he was flying over the Sea of Japan in a blacked-out banshee or flying over the far side of the moon in a blacked-out limb. This worked well for his voice, but he could not control his heart rate or respiration by sheer will. Lovell did not know how high his cardiac rate climbed after the explosion that aborted his mission on Monday night, but it upset him that everyone else knew, from the flight surgeon to the Fidos, even to the pool reporters. In the event of another crisis in the next two days, Lovell could think of no reason that his heart rate should be broadcast to the world. Peeling off the electrodes, he balled them up, stuffed them into a pocket, and pushed off toward the limb. Morning, Hayes said as Lovell's head poked through the tunnel. Looks like you finally got some rest. Lovell glanced at his watch. Wow, he said. Looks like I did. Jack coming down? Hayes asked. Nope. Lovell floated all the way into the cockpit. He's still sleeping. What's the status of things down here? Well, Hayes said, they've definitely decided on a mid-course burn sometime tonight, probably around 105 hours. Our trajectory is shallowing pretty bad now. Mm-hmm, Lovell said, and they're pretty sure we'll try to get it in before the helium bursts. Makes sense. Also, Hayes said, Looks like we had a bit of an event in the descent stage. An event? A bang and some venting. Lovell looked at his limb pilot for a long moment, reached for his headset, and pressed his push-to-talk switch. Hello, Houston, Aquarius. Uh, Roger, Jim. Good morning. Morning, Vance. How are things going down there? Oh, quiet and smooth. No, it's afternoon down there. Right, we thought maybe it was morning for you. Oh, well, I sort of lost track. Yeah, but I had a good sleep. Glad to hear it. The doctor just said, uh, he wondered how many hours. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, well, whenever I, I left, uh, when Jack and Fred came on, we ate for about an hour, and then I went to bed. So uh, whatever that time was, it must be about five hours or something like that, four or five hours. Good. Glad to see you catching up. Yeah. How about the descent stage? Does uh, Fred reported venting down there? Uh, do you still see that? Brand, who had not yet gotten a report from Arabian and McDivitt in Building 45, hedged. Stand by. What did you report, Brand? Uh, 
Lovell waited to see if his Capcon had anything to add, but Brand said nothing. In the clipped code of the air-to-ground loop, Lovell knew this silence said a lot. Brand didn't know what the bang was yet, and he would almost certainly prefer it if Lovell didn't pursue it. It was one thing for the news media to hear the Capcom explain a problem to the crew. Quite another thing for them to hear the commander ask for an explanation of something and the Capcom come up empty. Lovell let another instant go by and moved on to other things. And I understand that uh, we can expect the, uh, the heat tank pressure to build up to relieve your uh, about 105 hours. Uh, Roger, a little later than that, like 106 or 107. Okay. Now, one other point, uh, uh, philosophy uh, of uh, timing this mid-course is, is based a little bit on uh, doing it just before the sheet tank is supposed to vent. Uh, that way we hope that uh, we would have be powered up and you'd have control when the venting occurs, in case you were tossed around a little bit. Over. Okay, I understand the uh, philosophy of the mid-course is still prior to uh, venting of the sheet tank, which uh, Angel, if you're doing this around uh, 105 hours, I suppose, or 105.30, and uh, so we'll have control of the spacecraft uh, if uh, it should give us some uh, perturbation. Roger. Then after that, we would uh, establish PTC again. Roger. Jim clicked off the air pursed his lips and decided that he didn't like what he was hearing one bit. These newest problems might have surfaced on Hayes's watch, but they would have to be resolved on his. Lovell felt his jaw clench, once with an unexpected flutter of tension. Suddenly, Brand's voice reappeared in his ear. Aquarius Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Uh, Jim. Could you switch your biomed switch to the position opposite where it is now? We uh, are getting a subcarrier, but no data. Over. Lovell paused. Brand paused. Three seconds went by, and the man on the ground, sitting impassively at his console, outweighed the man in the spacecraft. Now you know, uh, I don't have biomed on. Lovell listened on the air-to-ground channel and braced for what he assumed would be a reprimand from Houston. Instead, he heard another few seconds of silence. Finally, Brand, an astronaut himself who, like Lovell, had learned his craft test-flying jets and who, like Lovell, might one day find himself in a busted spacecraft far from home, clicked back on the air. Okay. Lovell smiled to himself. When this flight was over, he'd have to remember to buy Brand a beer.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Mrs. SRH, your substitute host for the ailing Michael Annis. Thanks for listening to episode number 282 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Apollo 13, Battery Number 2. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I did my best. I want to give a big shout out to all our listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to our new listeners, We're glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Well, we have some good news. We're all the way caught up with the main RSS feed. Episodes 1 through 108 are available on the archive, and the rest are available on the main feed. Today we salute our Soyuz-level donors. There are 31 Soyuz donors so far this year. Soyuz donors contribute $30 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Soyuz donors. I want to credit our sources for this episode. Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription, The Internet Archive, Wikipedia, and the Johnson Space Center. Okay, we've placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast this week. Graham M. from Australia sent in another donation this year and moved up to the shuttle level with rocket, moon, satellite, and shooting star emojis. Martin G. from London sent in another donation this year and moved to the shuttle level. Bill M. from New York donated at the Apollo level. Mark N. from Florida donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Asa B. from New York donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Wolfgang W. from Germany donated at the Apollo level. Andrew F. from New Zealand sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level. Richard M. from Wisconsin donated at the Mercury level. David L. from New York donated at the Mercury level. David B. from Maine donated at the Vostok level. Melissa H. pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level. David B. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level and M. Olson increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level. Thank you for supporting the Space Rocket History Podcast. Our Patreon donors are now at 205, with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. So, we are 13 Patreon supporters below the goal. Our total donors for 2018 have reached 406, with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. That leaves us 12 donors short of the goal. Will we make our goal in 2018? It's going to be close. As we approach the end of the year, now is the perfect time to sign up with Patreon. All Patreon donors in December will automatically get a longevity emoji promotion with their January contribution. So now is an excellent time to sign up at Patreon. Or if you would rather make one-time donations, Make one in December and January and receive a longevity emoji. 
To support the podcast, go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, we certainly appreciate it. This week we are giving away the new official SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. I randomly selected Alan Clark. Alan Clark, if you would email us, Mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. We will try to get next week's episode out by next Thursday. Merry Christmas, everyone!